This morning we're reading out of Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 to 20. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it, read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us your word so that we can learn, know, and live in ways that are consistent with your character and nature. Forgive us for neglecting to know it, for refusing to obey it, and for failing to share it faithfully. Help us to count it precious as it is, to be daily renewed by its truth, and to conform to it, not to conform it to us. Teach us now through Pastor Ryan and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, Christ community. This morning, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, please go ahead and turn there. It's a little bit heavier chapter, and so we're going to jump in with just a brief recap. Last week, we saw that the Lord used Jonathan to defeat the Philistines, if you remember in chapter 14. And we also saw Saul's rashness with a foolish vow, a vow that would have killed his own son, except for Israel interceding for Jonathan. And then chapter 14, if you look at it, ends with a sort of summary of Saul's kingship. And so even though we're interacting with Saul in this chapter and in a way in the coming chapters, the writer of 1 Samuel is signifying what is to come. The end of Saul's kingship is determined. It is set. And now we are to compare his foolishness, his failings, with the one who is to come, who we're going to see next week in chapter 16. King David more than anyone, points forward to the son of David, Jesus Christ, the true and final king to come. As we begin our study in 1 Samuel 15, I want to remind us of the words Jesus said in John chapter 10. He said that his sheep hear his voice, and he knows them, and they follow him. He gives them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of his hand. God's sheep hear his voice, and follow his voice. This is the main theme and the main point of this morning's sermon. God's people obey his word. God's sheep obey his voice. Eight times in this chapter, in the Hebrew, the word voice, or sometimes translated word, is used. Saul will hear the word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, and not obey it. And then because of that, the voice of the Lord will issue judgment against him. Four points this morning that help us to track what is happening. Let me briefly pray before we jump in. Father, help us to sit under your word and not above it. May you, by your spirit, apply it to our hearts and our minds. In your sons, then we pray. Amen. Point number one, God's command. God's command. Look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting in verses, or reading verses 1 through 8. 
And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. The word of the Lord comes to Saul through Samuel, and it seems harsh. It is pointed. Devote to destruction the Amalekites. The Hebrew phrase there is put them under the ban. They are to be cursed for destruction, including all the people, and all of the plunder is off limits for Israel. This is what God commands Israel to do. So the question must be asked, because I'm sure even in your conversations with unbelievers, they've heard about this God of the Old Testament who's different from the God of the New Testament, and this God of the Old Testament, he told his people to go and destroy these other people. How could that be the same God? The question must be asked, is this just? Is this punishment just? Well, first let me say that our reaction that the innocent shouldn't be punished is a good thing. The belief that the innocent shouldn't be punished is correct. If anything, since we know the God who declares what is just and rules with justice, then we should desire that the innocent not be punished. But second, this is the word of God. And this is a command from God. Kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Notice that the innocent are spared. Did you see that in verse 6? The innocent are not punished. The Kenites are among the Amalekites, and Saul instructs them, hey, you're innocent. You didn't attack us. We're coming to destroy those who are guilty. Flee. God provides provision for them. But the question is still in the back of our minds. What did the Amalekites do? Why is this punishment just? Why are they guilty? Verse 2, I noted what Amalek did when my people came out of Egypt. What did they do? Deuteronomy 25, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear Yahweh. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you and the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. The idea of faint and weary means obviously that they are exhausted and cutting off the tail means that those who were lagging behind as the convoy is leaving Egypt implies that as they're coming out of Egypt, Amalek is attacking the stragglers. 
attacking the ones who are weaker, doing raids against them, attacking the women and children who would have been at the back of the convoy and then killing them. Verse 19, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Exodus 17, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. In a very real sense, Amalek is under the curse of God. Because as it says in the Deuteronomy passage, in his actions, he did not fear Yahweh. God will wipe them out. Israel is to not forget what they did. And this expectation of final destruction is given to the new king of Israel, Saul. He was to finish God's mission. The one who is leading God's people in vindication for the attacks done against God's people. And so I want to say this very clearly this morning. I recognize that this is a hard text, but I want to say this clearly. When God issues a command, it is the moral good. He alone sets morality. Morality, the idea and the understanding of what is good and what is bad, is not some ethereal concept that just exists in the universe apart from God. No, he tells us, he reveals to us, because he is our creator, what is good and what is bad. And what God says to do is the moral good. When he issues a command, it is what we are to do. Do we buck at that a little bit in our spirit, a little bit in our soul? Do we not even like those words that when God tells us to do something, we should do it? It is the moral good. Jesus, in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So what do we do with this command that grates against us? Devote all the people to destruction, God? Yes, all of them. That's the command of God here. It's a fulfillment of what he said he would do in Deuteronomy 17. And so I'm not going to be able to answer every what if or every question. Sometimes when we hear things we don't like, our minds automatically go to the what if scenarios or we argue to the utmost extreme for the scenarios. So let me just summarize and end this point by saying this. A culture can become so wicked and corrupt that it deserves total destruction, total annihilation. And we have seen this before in Scripture. Genesis 6, in the flood, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then he puts the world under the ban. He destroys everything. He annihilates them and wipes them out. As I said before, I realize this is hard stuff. Happy Thanksgiving. I don't want to skirt around this. But ultimately, in the midst of wrestling with this, we have to trust God. Being a Christian involves faith. Sure, there are many rational arguments to prove the existence of God, to prove certain doctrines of God. But at the end of the day, Scripture repeatedly calls us to have faith in God. To trust that we don't see all things from beginning to end. To trust that he is in control and that he is good and right and just. And he calls us to have faith. And we leave the final decision of people up to him. 
That does not mean we don't evangelize or we don't have a role to play, but he alone has numbered all of our days. Our God is right and good and just, and he always does that which is right and good and just. And in our fallen minds, we tend to judge God. We tend to judge his actions here, and we can easily place ourselves in the role of moral judge and friends. That's just arrogant. In our sin, we are arrogant that we think that we can judge God for his actions here. And what does this total destruction of Amalek foreshadow? What does it point forward to? The total destruction in hell. The ban forever from God's presence. A reminder for all then and here, then and here now, to listen to God's voice through his word while you still have time and to be made right with God through Christ. Those who are against the people of God, those who are against God himself will be judged completely. Those who attack God's people will one day, as we see here, be judged. God will exercise perfect vengeance at his appointed time. God's people find his favor, yes, of course, but God's enemies face his wrath and his vengeance. And ultimately, this is an encouragement to the saints. Justice will one day take place. It is, as Revelation 6 says, those who had been slain for the word of God and their witness to the world cry out to God, how long, O Lord, before you judge and avenge? At his appointed time, it will take place. Do not neglect the voice of the Lord to you today. Jesus' message 2,000 years ago is the same message proclaimed today. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Trust in Christ. You have no other hope. God's command comes and Saul follows through. Or does he? Point number two, disobedience and excuses. Disobedience and excuses. Notice here the perceived obedience that is actually disobedience. I'm going to start back again in verse 8. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord comes and Saul and the people obey to an extent. Notice he keeps Agag alive, but also that which they judged as worthless and despised, they devote to destruction. But the best, well, they decide to keep that for themselves. My main point under point number two this morning is that partial obedience is still disobedience. Partial obedience is still disobedience. Good intentions do not hide disobedience. Part of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is that we are called to obey. The great commission that Jesus tells to his disciples is to make disciples, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. He can say in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Obedience in scripture is presented as a good thing. Obedience is required for a disciple of Jesus. 1 John chapter 5, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. 
Obedience, as we will see later on, is what the Lord requires. Obedience that is wrought from faith, not as any form of legalism. If you missed last week's message from Pastor Daniel, I encourage you to go back and, and watch it. It was excellent. Daniel did such a good job explaining how legalism creeps in uh, into our faith so easily. So when I say obedience, don't hear legalism. It's not legalism to say obedience is required of the Christian. Obedience will reveal your love for the Lord. But two things to emphasize here. First, obedience is expected of all Christians. It is expected that you will obey your Lord and follow his commands. For his commands, as John says, are not burdensome. They are blessings. But second, we can praise God, friends, that in the midst of not being able to fully keep the commands of the law, to practice a perfect obedience ourselves, we have been given the obedience of another. We have been given the righteousness of Christ such that we are clothed with it before the Father. Praise God for that obedience. But obedience here in our text, in 1 Samuel 15, is what Saul fails to demonstrate. Partial obedience is still disobedience. Saul does devote some things to destruction, but not everything. How often can we trick ourselves into thinking that we are obeying God because we practice a partial obedience? God says, don't do that, and we mostly don't do it. God says, do this, and we mostly do it. It's like the person that says, the Bible just says don't have sex before marriage. Everything else is okay. They play with scripture, seeking to obey some of it and ignore other parts. Every parent knows this as well, asking their teenager to clean their room and they hang up a few clothes and push the rest under the bed. Did they really obey? Where in your life, where in your life are you lying to yourself by partially obeying God? Where in your life then are you in disobedience to God? Rather than obedience, what Saul offers up instead is disobedience and excuses. So let us keep reading. Look with me at verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, such a great line of scripture, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil 
sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Let me highlight a few things for us here. First, notice Samuel's care for Saul. The Lord removes his blessing to be king, and Samuel is distraught. He truly cared for him such that he is angry. He is grieved at both the action of Saul, and he's probably grieved in some way at the Lord's judgment. We're going to talk about that judgment at the end, but notice his love and his anguish such that he cries to the Lord all night. Friends, if you've ever had a close friend that professes to love God, has followed after him for many years maybe, for all intents and purposes, shows a life that is seeking to follow God, and then they forsake God, and they turn away, they no longer want to follow him, the emotions involved in that are heavy. It's deep. Even in here today, the burden of lost family members weighs on it, does it not? Maybe you are reminded of this at Thanksgiving, lost sons and daughters, lost parents who have maybe made a confession but aren't living anything out, aren't evidencing it. It brings us grief and anguish like no other. Our tears are poured out in prayer before God. The Christian knows the anguish that Samuel is experiencing here. The Lord sustains us, yes, of course, but it is a hard thing to walk through. And Samuel clearly loved and cared for Saul. But second, notice what Saul so foolishly does. He sets up a monument to himself. Remember the stone of remembrance that we saw just a few chapters back? Our Ebenezers of till now the Lord has helped us. Monuments and altars are to God, not to us. What is this guy doing? He's self-absorbed. He's focused on himself. He's prideful in his victory. In the midst, though, of his disobedience, Saul is caught. And what does he offer up? Excuses. In the midst of the bleeding sheep and the lowing oxen that Samuel can obviously see and hear, he says, but I have obeyed. Notice verse 13, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Notice again in verse 20, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission. I have brought the king. I have devoted them to destruction. But the people took the spoil. Saul here, like so many of us, when we are caught in our sin, when we are called out by a brother or sister in Christ, is self-deceived. He offers up the people and what they wanted to do as an excuse, and he offers up his partial obedience as his reasoning. He is self-deceived. And we can do the same thing, can't we? We can go to an early morning prayer meeting, feel so close to the Lord, and then not show the slightest care for a coworker later that same day. We can read the Bible and then yell at our spouse or our children, can't we? We can sit under God's word in this very room being proclaimed and disregard any prompting of the Spirit for meaningful change, can't we? Or even like Saul, who sets up a monument for himself, we can figuratively do the same. Little monuments in our head of our accomplishments so that others can see and take notice. We keep a catalog of the things that we accomplish compared to other coworkers. Little monuments to us. The self-deceiving nature of sin is no light matter. Like that faucet leak that you can't see just slowly dripping, dripping until it's leaked through the ceiling and into the basement, sin deceives us like the cancer cells slowly ravaging us from inside until that sudden diagnosis comes, we often have no idea 
in our sin, we can think that we are actually obeying God. We can think we are actually doing what we ought to do. We can think that we got this Christianity thing all figured out, and we can be so quick to blame others when our sin is brought up. Notice how Saul says, it's the people who took these things. Never mind that he's the king. Never mind that he is in control and that he is held responsible. Like Adam in the garden blaming that woman that God gave him. There we have Israel. Here we have Israel's first king blaming the people that God gave him. Like Aaron blaming the people and just making a golden calf. Saul doesn't lead them with a strong hand. And then a word from God comes and it cuts through all of that self-deception. Samuel tells Saul, stop. Maybe some of us need to hear that this morning. Just that one word. Maybe the Holy Spirit has been convicting you of certain hidden sins in your life and you are self-deceived and you are ignoring that conviction. Maybe you need to hear this. Stop. Samuel tells Saul, stop. Stop your lies. Stop your excuses. Stop your self-deception. Listen to what God has to say to you and the judgment that he will deliver. My friends, may we hear this warning now. Do not let sin continue to deceive you. Do not paint yourself as a better person in your mind, subtly looking down on others. There is one thing and one thing only that we can do when we are deceived, and that is to run to the God of truth, the one in whom there is no falsehood, the one who cleanses us from all unrighteousness, the one who has sent his son to redeem his people. I said earlier that the voice or the word of the Lord is repeated throughout this chapter. And here Saul thinks that he obeyed the voice of the Lord, but he didn't. He actually rejects Yahweh's word. And to reject Yahweh's word is to reject Yahweh himself. It is the height of arrogance. Instead, the prayer we should pray as members of Christ's community is that we would collectively be not only hearers, but doers of the word recognizing when we or others are self-deceived and holding one another accountable in grace and truth. I pray that that would be true of us. Point number three, what really matters? What really matters? The Lord here through Samuel is going to teach Saul a lesson, a lesson concerning true obedience, but a lesson more so on what type of heart and worship the Lord is ultimately after. This lesson isn't just written here for us, but progressively unfolded throughout the Old Covenant as that covenant points forward to something new and greater, what you and I get to experience today in the New Covenant. But look with me here in 1 Samuel 15, in the midst of the Old Covenant, how he reveals himself. Famous passage of Scripture, starting in verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? There's that word again. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. What is Samuel saying here? What about all of that sacrificial system that the old covenant had set up, the Mosaic covenant had set up? Doesn't the Lord require sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins? Yes, he does. But that's not the main point here. The Lord is revealing his heart. 
He is saying that formal worship, like sacrifices, cannot be substituted for an obedient life. We cannot have external devotions and no internal submission to God. We cannot pride ourselves on our church attendance, our Bible reading, our prayer life, and fail to obey God's word at the same time. The Lord is after the heart. He always has been. So Samuel can clearly say, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen is better than the fat of rams. And then verse 23 is striking. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Why is rebellion like divination? We tend to think of divination and dealing with demonic spirits as much more evil than rebellion. They're the same because in both, we are trusting in something other than God. This rebellion is in the context of obedience. Samuel is saying through the Holy Spirit that when you do not obey, it is like divination. He's possibly foreshadowing what's to come with Saul and the witch of Endor. It's as bad as that sin. Samuel is showing the true importance of obedience. And then presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. I love the prophet Samuel. He doesn't pull any punches. Back in chapter 7, it was the same way. And so he is here, straightforward in calling out the sin. And it's the comparison that he wants us to see. God doesn't tolerate a halfway devoted heart. He will have all of it, or he will have none of it. Lukewarmness, as we see in the book of Revelation, is like something he wants to spit out of his mouth. And Saul's arrogance is to presume upon the Lord, to think that he can hear a command from God and modify it as he sees fit. That is arrogance, it is rebellion, and it is ultimately idolatry. For what is idolatry? Putting something, worshiping something in the place of God. And when we do that, When we do not fully obey him, when we change the command in our mind because we don't fully like it like Saul does here, it is the idolatry of putting ourselves in the place of God. We know better than him. I hope we see that this morning. May we never presume upon the Lord's grace. May we never presume to change his commands to fit our lifestyle. May we never presume to think that he is wrong and we in fact know what is right. God forbid that ever be true of any of us. The Lord, as I said, has been after the heart all along since the garden onward. It is as Hosea 6, 6 says, for I desired mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. God desires that we know him. And that knowledge will reveal itself in faith, in love, and yes, in obedience. Do you know God? Is your life showing that you do? To the unbeliever here this morning, the one not trusting in Christ alone, you would say that you're not a Christian. Maybe you're in town visiting family. We want to welcome you. Maybe you think in some ways you are spiritual and it's just not Christianity isn't the only way or you want nothing to do with God. Somewhere on that spectrum. It does not matter. You are lost all the same if you are not in Christ. That's the message of the scriptures. In love, I want to tell you that your sin is deceiving you. You are self-deceived, and apart from knowing God, you have no hope in this life or in eternity. That's the bad news. And friends, you really have to wrestle with the bad news before you come to recognize the good news. Because the good news is that God 
through his son, Jesus Christ, has made a way for you to be redeemed and restored and forgiven. That God the Son, Jesus Christ, came and took as your substitute the punishment, the wrath, and the judgment that you and I deserved. He died in our place. Yet he did not stay dead. He rose again. And he defeated once and for all the powers of sin and death. And so the message of the scriptures, what brings us in here this morning, why we would say that we are a Christian, is because we do not rely on our good works. We do not offer up to God our partial obedience. But instead we look to Jesus Christ. We trust in him. We trust in him. The message of the Bible in part is that we do not get to decide how salvation comes to us. God alone gets to decide. And it is only through Christ. You must turn to him in faith. You must come to Christ in faith, recognizing your sins and trusting in him. Trust in Christ this morning. Point number four, judgment. Judgment. I'm going to read the rest of the chapter, and it's not pleasant like the rest, like the rest of it before. Starting in verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. There's that word. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, verse 29, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul. And Saul bowed before the Lord. Verse 32, then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before Yahweh in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Judgment comes upon Saul. The kingdom is taken from him and given to another. And I briefly here, I want to discuss two things in closing. Saul's repentance and the Lord's regret all in the context of judgment. Saul's repentance and Lord's regret. First, Saul's repentance. Saul's repentance isn't a true repentance. Notice how he is all about saving face. Come back with me, Samuel. At least honor me before the elders. Some years back, my oldest, Jed, mouthed off to his mom while I was at work. Every parent's been there, right? But he mouths off, and later that day, we were, they were supposed to go uh, visit some friends and play together at the park, and the kids would get to play together. He's looking forward to it. So as the time draws near, Jed is getting ready, and he goes and he tells mom, shouldn't you be getting ready? And Laura says, no, we aren't going anymore. 
I texted the mom, your behavior toward me was sinful and wrong, and there are punishments for our actions. And Jed, what does he do? He starts crying. He's apologizing profusely, to which Laura said, thank you for your apology. I forgive you, but we still aren't going. Just as children must learn that the Lord disciplines those he loves and that a consequence-motivated apology is not enough, so Saul must learn the same here. His sorry is just an attempt to stave off any punishment. He has no true repentance. Saul here wants to save face. He doesn't want to suffer the consequences. And then Samuel does what Saul the king should have, and he kills Agag. Sure, Saul recognizes, as it says in the text, that he has sinned, but just don't let me lose face before the elders. Just come back with me, Samuel, so I still have a good standing before them. Brothers and sisters, hear me here clearly. Coming to know that you're a sinner isn't conversion. Confessing yourself to be a sinner isn't conversion. Even desiring forgiveness is not conversion. Conversion, according to God's word, is an act of God's spirit that both brings us to repentance and enables us to have faith in Christ. It's a supernatural act of God. If Saul was truly repentant, he would have grabbed a sword and taken care of Agag himself. He would have obeyed God. Instead, Samuel does it. So this repentance of Saul's is ultimately a sham. And second, the Lord regrets. Look with me at verses 11 and 35. In there, the Lord regrets, or your Bible might say, he repents. And then in verse 29... And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. What do we do with this? Is the Bible just full of contradictions like some say? Is it confused? The Lord regrets, he doesn't regret. Well, notice that this happens in the same chapter, doesn't it? Is the writer confused here? No, he's not. The writer clearly knew what he was doing, as we've seen elsewhere. This isn't about contradictions or confusion. This book is beautifully and purposefully written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's wanting us to wrestle with something. It's a good thing to wrestle with God's Word, to ask questions and to pray over it in a spirit of humility. Those who seek after God do that. At the beginning and at the end, it says in the chapter that the Lord regrets, but in the middle, we have this stalwart statement of him not regretting. So let's think about this. First, this is God's word. This is the voice of God for us. This is true and without error, and this revelation is what we submit our lives to. Second, some would argue that this means that God didn't know that Saul would fall away. That he doesn't know the future because of this expression. Like he wants to redo the play that he has drawn up. Now we have dealt with this before in the past, but let me just say this. There are scores of biblical texts that say otherwise. That God clearly knows the beginning from the end. That he's working out all things according to his plan. God is not surprised by Saul here. But he does regret something in a sense. And this is what the writer wants to communicate. In verses 11 and 35, the idea of God regretting is to convey that we serve a God who is personal. He's not dead in his emotions and so transcendent up there that he does not care about us down here. He feels. 
He is brought to anger in Scripture. He loves, he's jealous for his people, and he grieves. Our God is a personal God. Yet, we hold that, we hold that tightly, yet in verse 29, we're reminded that he does not regret like we do. His character does not change. As the classical doctrines would affirm, he is simple and does not change. He alone is self-derived. He is our rock. And while there is some anthropopathism taking place, just a fancy word that means just describing human emotions to God, God is still revealing himself to us. He ordained Saul. Yet even in that moment, he feels grief over Saul. A parent knows this intuitively, even if not perfectly. You can know what will happen to your children based on the lifestyle that they are living. You can see the road signs the choices that they're making, the friends that they are with, we can recognize where their path is going, right? But even so, when our predictions and warnings come true and they do the very thing that, they, that we hoped that they wouldn't, don't we still grieve for them in the moment? We do. We still feel. Such is the case with the preeminent one of Israel, the one who truly sees what will happen, the God who does not change, who is not controlled by his emotions, the God who knows all things from beginning to end, yet in the moment, the God who feels for his people. Friends, it is only the consistent God of verse 29 and the sorrowful God of verses 11 and 35 that we have the God of the Bible, the God alone who is worthy of our praise. As one writer says, he is a God who is neither fickle in his ways nor indifferent in his responses. When you take away one for the other, you either, you either have a lifeless God or you have an emotion-driven God who cannot control himself. But the God of the Bible reveals both and is worthy of our praise. And friends, this is exactly what we see in the cross, is it not? God's justice must be met. His wrath must be poured out for the sin, for he does not change. He must pour out this wrath because the sin is against him. Yours and I's sin. A judgment had to take place just like it did here for Saul. Yet, he is moved for his people. He is moved to save his people by sending his one and only son to die in our place and to take that judgment. That is the God that we serve. The God of 1 Samuel 15 is the same God revealed to us beautifully in the new covenant. I hope that we are astounded all the more at the God who pities his people and saves his people. The kingdom is taken from Saul. It's going to be given to another. We're going to see who this is next week in David. But let us remember this. God's sheep hear his voice. God's people obey his voice. A trusting faith will show itself in obedience. Not perfection, but a trusting obedience. Look to Christ this morning for your perfect obedience. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we as your church are gathered here to worship you in spirit and in truth. Pray that we can sit under your word. It's a hard word. We're wrestling with it. We desire to understand it, desire that your spirit would apply it to our hearts and our lives and our mind. So we ask that you would. Father, we are quick, so quick to justify ourselves before you and before others. 
so quick to put forth a partial obedience and just think, well, that's enough. Father, help us to come to the end of ourselves if we have to and to look to your son who truly has a perfect obedience and he gives us to that when we have faith in him. But Father, we would need to remember from this passage that your sheep hear your voice and they obey your voice. Would you help us to do that? And in the midst of our failings, would you help us to look to your son all the more? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.